as I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise, their deeds are in the hands of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be, be always white. Let not all be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the chance to gather with our faith family. Above all, Father, we thank you for an opportunity to meet with you. We pray for your spirit now to use your word in our lives. We pray that you would incline our hearts and our minds to your word. Uh, Father, we would, as always, not just be informed, but transformed by what we see in your word. And we pray not just for ourselves, Father. We pray for each of our sister churches in town today that the gospel would be clear, that you would empower both the sharing of the word and the receiving of the word and then the going with the word afterward. Father, we pray for your provision to be mindful. And this, as this text says that we would not minimize the reality of death in our lives, but that we would maximize the life that you've given. There will be an end to our opportunity to make disciples. There will be an end to our opportunity to pray with our family. There will be an end to our opportunity to go places with you and with the gospel. So help us not to waste time on sin, Help us to see each day as a gift, and we pray for the grace to steward them well. Help us now as we come to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. If this is your first Sunday with us. We've been walking through Ecclesiastes, uh, I guess, since uh, April. We took a couple Sundays in May and celebrated Mother's Day and our students who were graduating, but we've been walking through and of course we are not a personality driven uh, church which means that uh, we're not trying to just put this material together and sell it in a package so that even when I'm out one of our other pastors just picks up the next text and preaches and so I'm grateful in doing camps uh, this summer uh, to have Matthew and to have Kevin who preached faithfully different aspects of Ecclesiastes 
I wish I could have picked some of the hardest passages and just in God's good providence allowed them to have those. Uh, but uh, just for an extra blessing for them and for you. But uh, I'm grateful that the Lord lays these things out as he will. And I'm grateful that as you come here Sunday after Sunday, you can trust that someone is going to walk through the word and that you can bring your friends and that they will hear uh, the word preached. I did say in an email to uh, to most of you that, uh, you know, this last camp was the most difficult. Uh, it was in the third world country of Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and I was, and I was happy that I had my passport so I could get back out, and uh, I was encouraged, so I did see this busload of people getting off with purple shirts and gold LSU across their chest. I knew the Lord was sending missionaries to this campus, and that we were not alone, and so... I'm grateful. Uh, I did also say that I brought my picture Bible in case I could minister to the students there. So I'm on a roll, Bama fans. All of that just to be a blessing for you this morning. If you're a guest and a Bama fan, I apologize for you being a Bama fan. And, uh, and uh, it, was a, it was a great camp. The Lord was really gracious and he met with us in his word uh, of all the times Students were so attentive uh, from that from that word, and uh, it was really an incredible opportunity to see God actually use His word in, in the life of even the staff. And then they had served in mission projects all around town, and to see people in Tuscaloosa come to Christ last week was really a sweet experience. So I'm grateful for that. Grateful for your uh, willingness to let me continue to partner and to go and to preach the word to students all over. With that being said, coming off the heels of a student camp, uh, there's a, a formula that I always remember. It's this, up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, BA, select, start. Does anyone know what that is? Yeah, there's a couple hands going up. Uh, for those of us, it's called the Konami code, but you, most of us use it in a game called Contra, and it was a way that gave you 30 extra lives to beat this Nintendo game. And, uh, and so you would do, you would do that. And, and just so you know, that still on certain biographies, when people are like, hey, tell us a little bit about yourself, I always add that I still know the cheat code, the Contra. And uh, I saw a shirt that just had arrows with this. It was the up, up, down, down, left, right. I was like, my kindred brother right there. I knew it, right? And uh, it, it, having those lives was really the only way many of us could uh, beat that game. Uh, and having more lives than we necessarily needed allowed us to be reckless and not as cautious, perhaps, if we only had five lives to try to take on that game. Risks were not as costly as long as we could restart right where, right where we died. You could pick up and keep going and have what you needed. But I've spent many summers reminding students that life is not a video game and we can't go back to the last save checkpoint. Junior high and high school are not opportunities that we do over. Uh, for many of us, it's uh, six years uh, that we don't get back. Others have the privilege of eight and nine years. But, but for many of us, it's, it's six years that they're not going to come again. And as we saw last week with the tragedy with the duck boats in Missouri, and it, it hit us because two weeks ago when my family was in Chattanooga, uh, one of the things we have not done in Chattanooga in the ten summers in a row we've gone there is the duck boats. And we were really considering the duck boats, but... We ended up doing the rock climbing, but seeing the, the tragedy there and knowing that nine members of one family perished in a moment, we are reminded that we do not have an endless supply of lives here under the sun. That's the phrase as Kevin read our text, 
under the sun, under the sun, under the sun, that keeps being refrained here. We do not have an endless supply of lives. We have just one. We have just one. And there's bad as the 17 at least or or possibly more that died in there less than three weeks ago more than a hundred migrants drowned off the coast of Libya including three babies and as I read that article literally they're holding these three babies there are pictures of these three babies that are drowned trying to get away from where they've been trying to find refuge and help and it was absolutely heartbreaking and there's not a do-over those babies are those babies have run their course. And the 97 adults that were with them as well have run their course. In Psalm 90, it's a psalm that's attributed to Moses, but verse 12 says this. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. I don't know how often you pray that prayer, but we're encouraged to do so. It's, whether it was of Moses or just attributed to him in the psalms, uh, what we know is that we should pray this, that Give us, teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. We are closer to our deaths than when we started this study through Ecclesiastes. We always say that we're one week closer this Sunday than we were last week to, to one of two events, either our own death or Christ's return. And so I don't know how often you pondered that. Perhaps there were things in your life that caused you to ponder the end of life. But I hope that it's not too far uh, in between those thoughts so that we can maximize the life that we have. Uh, The great theologian William Wallace uh, said, every man dies, but not every man truly lives in the great movie Braveheart. And so the essence of our text here is get to living while you have life. Uh, I remember there was a scare in our world called Y2K. Anyone remember Y2K? I graduated high school in 1995, and, and I can remember thinking in 95, man, if the world's going to end in 2000, why even bother going to college, right? And just, just, just live here, just do things, you know? Now, 23 years later from 1995, I can say with certainty, I'm glad that I went on to college and went on to seminary in those five years and sought to be faithful in them because I can't go back and live them again, and I can't go back and relive last week. And each day is a gift that we steward well for God's glory and the good of others. And so knowing that the end is coming should not produce passivity in our lives, but God's grace to produce pursuit of living it to the maximum for his glory and the good of others. Which gets us to the top of your notes there, the passage and the sentence. These ten verses in Ecclesiastes 9 is just considering the finality of our death can fuel faithfulness in our life as we seek to steward well each day the Father gives us. And so the, the, uh, Solomon is done with his experiments now, and he's moved into his exhortations. He's gathered all the research that he needs, and now he's drawing some conclusion, conclusions in chapter 9 through chapter 12. And his conclusion here is, you're all going to die, and so seize life while you have it. Seize it for what it is. Enjoy the gifts from God. We can maximize life by not minimizing death. And in our culture, uh, it's it's far different. Death has become uh, such an industry that separates us. There used to be a time that you buried your loved one. You put the clothes on them. You dug the grave for them. You took care of all the preparations. And now, for many of us, that's done by those at the funeral home and separates. And there's there's a buffer between us. And so... 
death in some ways is minimized. Death is minimized for many of us because we just don't want to think about it. We don't want to think about it. The problem is by not thinking about it, however, we're probably not going to be fueled with urgency in the life that we have. So two main truths from this text. Here's truth number one. The reality, we need a healthy perspective on death. We need a healthy perspective on death. He begins in verse 1 and says, But all this I laid to heart. Well, what is all this he's laid to heart? Certainly everything from Ecclesiastes 8, but everything in his research up to this point. He's, he's putting it all together. And again, he's, he's coming to some conclusions. So he says, all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it's love or hate, man doesn't know, but both are before him. And so what he doesn't ever fade in is God's sovereignty, that God is in control of all things and that he reigns and that our, our, the, the things that come about for the righteous and wise, their deeds, what we experience, that all of that is in control. We saw two weeks ago from Ecclesiastes 7 that what he was struggling to figure out is how come the righteous were dying in their righteousness, but the wicked were flourishing in their evil. And he was trying to, to look at these things. And so we, we live in a world that's full of sin and and we know that sometimes there are those who lay down their lives in obedience to the gospel. But we also know beyond Solomon that death for believers never punishment. Death, especially in obedience, is not punishment. As Paul will go on to say that we go to the far better and it is gain to be with Christ. But what he, he says here is God is in control. And what we can know is that, that God is with us and for us and working all things for our good, even when it's difficult to see this. And so he says, I laid this to heart, examining how the righteous and the, wrong, and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Of course, I was thinking this week about John 10, how John writes and he's, uh, Jesus is saying in there that I've got my people in my hand and my father has my hand and nothing can snatch them out of our hands and I read more many of you know John Patton is one of my favorite missionaries I, I've shared about him often for those of you who don't know and there were two missionaries from the London Missionary Society who went to the New Hebrides Islands they literally got off the boat they were slaughtered by the natives there and then they were cannibalized and so word got back obviously of how that turned out and in the intermittent time, there, there'd be a couple that would go to different places in the New Hebrides. But 19 years later, John Patton would be convinced that he needed to take his young wife and they needed to go and serve at the New Hebrides. And of course, there were warnings of you'll be eaten alive, don't go. And of course, his response was whether it's by cannibals or your body itself will be eaten by worms. Either way, the Lord will raise us up in the end. We need to go with the gospel. And many of you know, six months after serving there, his wife would actually die, succumb to a fever after giving birth to their son. And then two weeks later, that, that son would succumb to fever there on the island. He literally buried both of them uh, with his bare hands. And there he is, left alone on an island with people who don't know Jesus and love Jesus. He wrote and said, Once when natives in large numbers were assembled at my house, a man furiously rushed on me with his axe, but another chief snatched a spade with which I'd been working and dexterously defended me from instant death. Life in such circumstances led me to cling very near to the Lord Jesus. I knew not for one brief hour when or how attack might be made 
And yet with my trembling hand clasped in the hand once nailed on Calvary and now swaying the scepter of the universe, calmness and peace and resignation abode in my soul. I love the picture that he says, the hand that holds me is the hand that was once nailed to Calvary and now that hand sways the scepter of the universe and he reigns and peace flooded back into my soul. What an incredible picture that he, he has here. He would write another time when he was surrounded and he would literally sleep with his clothes on because he never knew if he had to get up and run. There was a dog that he had that the, God calls the natives to be afraid of that dog and that dog would bark and work and, and that's how often he would be preserved. Literally trying to see them come to Christ and yet running off and often seeing God's provision and protection in different ways. But he says at one point he was completely surrounded. And he says, my heart rose up to the Lord Jesus. I saw him watching all the scene. My peace came back to me like a wave from God. I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. The assurance came to me as if a voice out of heaven had spoken that not a musket would be fired to wound us. He says that because one of the chiefs followed him around in the woods for four hours with a gun trying to, to get him and never once was able to shoot him. Not a club prevailed to strike us, not a spear leave the hand in which it was held vibrating to be thrown, not an arrow leave the bow or a killing stone the fingers without the permission of Jesus Christ, who is all power in heaven and on earth. He rules all nature, animate and inanimate, and restrains even the savage of the South Seas. He would serve for 45 years in the New Hebrides, and God would use him in incredible ways to see people come to Christ. There would be other tragedies. He would marry again. They would lose another child because of a hurricane that swept through. There was pain throughout there, but there was also the presence of God. And his realization, never doubting, God is in control of every step. Each day, it's his to determine, my life is in his hands, is what John Patton would say. And it's what Solomon is saying here. Above all, we're not just left to chance. Above all, God isn't, we're not deists that God started the world spinning and then went off and he's busy somewhere. God is in control. The problem that Solomon has is trying to discern what's good and what's bad. And it's what many of us discern. As Job's friends were certain that all Job was experiencing was punishment for sin somewhere in his life. But it was not punishment. It's why we make poor judges. And so Solomon says whether it's love or hate. So Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Trying to figure out what, what's good or what's not and trying to discern is this punishment or is this just to help me grow further in sanctification? Trying to discern these things. And what we, what we ultimately know is we do not judge God's love for us based on our circumstances, but based on the cross. We don't judge God's love for us based on our circumstances because we could look around and, and one of our loved ones has sickness or or someone else has lost their job and we could think, man, God doesn't love us. But his love cannot be, more, cannot be demonstrated more clearly than on the cross of Christ. And this is the epitome and depth of his love. And so we, we don't judge it based on our circumstances. We, we look to the cross to know he does love us. He is for us. And even in the midst of all of this other stuff, even when you, you bury the one who's come to bring the gospel with you to that island, even then, it's not punishment. There's something that Lord, the Lord's doing. And as we saw two weeks ago, we want to trust him with everything we understand. And we want to trust him with everything we do not. Knowing that he fully understands each picture. So Solomon begins, he says, look, the Lord's in control of the righteous and the wise. 
and what we we're trying to discern, but we can't. And, and the reason that he's struggling is because of verse 2. He says, it's the same for all since the same event does not know both uh, because, sorry, it's the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. He who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil that's done under the sun that the same event happens to all. And what he's talking about is death. So why, why he's still struggling with this is he says, it just doesn't seem like the righteous should have to experience the same thing that the unrighteous do. The one that gives to the one that doesn't give. That, that the one who keeps an oath versus the one who doesn't keep an oath. That they should have the same treatment. But it gets us to the, the second subtruth there in your notes. That death is a certain and evil reality in our world. And as another has said, morality is no protection against mortality. So he's giving this list. Here's what the good do. Here's what the bad do. But the outcome is still the same. Death. Keeping God's law cannot keep you from Adam's curse. And that's what he's saying here, that it's going to come. I love what another has said. Death is a predator that tracks us down. We can't outrun death no matter how much kale we eat, how many medicines we take, how many diets we try, how many Botox injections we receive, or how many workout programs we do. Death is coming for all of us. I remember when my dad died my senior year at LSU, and, and I, was, uh, I was running one day after that. And I remember just the thought of, I can't outrun death. If it's cardiovascular disease that my family has, then I ultimately cannot outrun that. And just the awareness of, no matter if I'm faithful to exercise, and those things can be helpful. I'm not dismissing that. But those things cannot fully prevent death. And so the reminder that for the good and the bad, I, I read this weekend, and many of you maybe saw that the former cardiologist for President George H.W. Bush was killed in a drive-by bicycling. He literally was biking to the hospital to work and another guy was biking and turned around and shot him twice in the back. The author uh, here, his problem is, look at what verse 3 says, this is an evil. His problem is that, that death is this great evil and he says this was not supposed to be a part of our world. This was not the best way that... that uh, when God put us in the garden, death wasn't a part of the garden. Death is a consequence for our rebellion. And so death is not just something that happens to us. Death is something we've caused. And it is this great evil. It, it's not just... So what he wants us not to do is to minimize and say, well, death is how we get to heaven. It's just the vehicle that gets us there. He wants us to say, death is a bad thing. Death is an evil thing of what it does in our lives. And we should be outraged, in some ways, just as Jesus was outside the tomb of Lazarus when he wept, that death is a thief. Death steals, robs. The bottom line of that is death is certain and an evil reality in our world. One of the sermons that I preached uh, this past week was from Exodus 19, when God has delivered them from Egypt and then he's going to meet with his people. And he comes down on Sinai and the entire mountain trembles. And he gives Moses specific instructions to say, you cannot go past these boundaries, not your children, not your animals, because I will break out on them in wrath. 
And so he gives them three days to actually make preparations. And then when he descends on that mountain and the trumpet blows, the people come forward up to where they, they can, but they are scared to death. And the, the sound gets louder and Moses speaks and God answers with thunder. And the picture that's here, the ultimate uh, culmination is the people are going to say from that, hey, you be the mediator. We, we don't want to talk anymore. You, we're good. We believe you. It's real. And, uh, and, and so they had such an encounter. And I think sometimes on this side of the cross, we don't ponder enough Exodus 19 and Isaiah 6, that when Isaiah stands in the presence of a holy God, he literally falls down on the ground and he says, woe is me, I'm undone. In essence there, what he says is, I want what's inside to come outside. I'm, I'm undone here in the presence of a holy God. And the two questions that I asked those students in response to that, and in light of our text, that death is certain. Are you and I prepared to stand in the presence of a holy God? And whom are we helping be prepared to stand in his presence? Because the presence of God without provision is a problem. The presence of God without provision is a problem. And sometimes we lose sight of this. I love the picture when... when Jesus has the crowd pushing in on him, and it's one of his first exchanges with Peter. They've been fishing all night. They're, they're cleaning their nets. Jesus says, hey, can we get in your boat? And so he gets in the boat so he can get away from the crowd and then teach the crowd. And once he finishes teaching, he says to Peter, hey, why don't you let down your net? And Peter, you know, says, Lord, we did it all night. We didn't, we didn't catch anything, but we'll do it. We'll do it in light of, of you asking us. Of course... The nets become so full, Peter has to signal for another boat to come help, and then both boats continue to sink. And then Peter's recognition is this. Peter says, Lord, go away from me because I'm a sinful man. And I feel like we've lost some of that in our world. Of We've minimized God's holiness, and we've minimized our sin, sinfulness. But I love the fact that Jesus is not there in the boat to get away from unholiness. He's there because he's going to take away unholiness. It's this incredible picture of, of Jesus being there in the midst of it. And so death is certain. And he says it doesn't matter how righteous you are. And it doesn't matter how wretched you are. The outcome is coming. And it's for everyone you saw last week. And everyone you'll see this afternoon. And everyone you'll see this week. One day... Every single one of us will stand before a holy God. And without provision, we will perish. And we should be gripped by this. We then move to subject three here is that each day is a gift from God that none of us deserves. He says in the rest of verse three, this is an evil in all that's done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. After that, they go to the dead. So basically, he says, we all die, and we deserve it. And in the hearts of, and here he uses the word Adam. He's connecting back to Genesis. But in the, in the hearts of man, in the hearts of the son of man, they're full of evil, and madness is in their hearts. You know what, what's surprising? is not that death is coming for us all. What's surprising is that death is not immediate. <laughs> for us all that's what should be surprising to us we are all children of adam and are sinners who deserve death 
another author writes and says, it's only because of his mercy that we're not consumed today. From the day I was born, I lived under the sentence of death and amazed that God spared me as long as he did. It means I've been heading for death from the moment I was born. Of course, realizing that we all come to death before we come to it is very different from realizing it only when it's staring you in the face. Each day, and really actually each moment, is a grace from the Lord that we're called to steward it well. And I think too much time is wasted on sin because we lack a healthy fear of the Lord. You know, you know why we choose sin? Because we presume he will not kill us in that moment. It is a presumption that a holy God is not going to strike us dead. Perhaps we're thinking because he punished Christ, that should never be a reason to run to sin. It is clear presumption. Matter of fact, the author of Proverbs, Solomon, will say, one turns away from evil by the fear of the Lord. And so Solomon concludes, we all die, but in reality, we all deserve to die. And if you don't see each day as a gift from the Lord, if there's some reason in your mind you think, well, I, I deserve another day, I, I've been good. Again, you don't have a healthy understanding of holiness and our sinfulness and the stewardship that's entrusted. Which gets us to our final sub-point here in, in understanding the reality of death. Those who are alive have opportunities which those who have perished will never have again. I love the picture he says here because it was in the Peanuts comic strip. One day Snoopy quoted this text. It says in verse 4, But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. And Snoopy in the, in the comics, you know, Charlie Brown's like, what does that mean? And Snoopy's like, I don't know, but I like it. And so, obviously, when we think about dogs, we think about, you know, uh, we have two dogs that are in our house. One is immortal. Uh, I keep trying to tell the Lord I think her work is done, and it is okay to take her home, but she is immortal. And then we have the 90 to 95-pound Boudin Roo who thinks he's a four-pound dog. And, uh, and so we think of dogs in this cuddly sort of thing, but dogs, this is why Goliath says, Am I a dog that you would come at me with sticks? As in, dogs were not pets. Dogs were scavengers. But Solomon's point here is, it's better to be a scavenging dog than the height of the animals if you're a lion and dead. Or to say it another way in human terms, better to be a beggar who's alive than a king who's dead because there's still some hope for things that you can do. He goes on to say, for the living know that they will die, verse 5, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that's done under the sun. Death brings a permanent end to our earthly existence. That's it. Death brings a permanent end to our earthly existence. For the one who's dead, here's what he says, here's his list. Death brings ignorance, because the dead do not know anything that's happening on earth, he writes. As soon as we die, we forfeit our share in all that's done under the sun. So there's no earthly gain, no earthly reward. No one remembers the dead when they're gone. We all hope that maybe we could be those few that generations talk about. But the reality is, most of us, our great-grandchildren, won't even talk about us. That's the reality. That's what we saw in, in chapter 1, that they're forgotten. And then he says, they're, look in verse 6, their love, their hate, their envy, that... Our most passionate earthly emotions will disappear when we die. 
The time is coming when all the things that you think are most important in the world, all your strongest emotions, your love, your hate, your jealousy, the time is coming when they will all go cold and vanish and be forgotten. One day working and planning and knowledge and wisdom will cease. So do them now while you can. When we die, we will no longer have an opportunity to make disciples. When we die, we will no longer have an opportunity to share the gospel with a lost friend or a family member. Just think about the illustration Jesus gives of the rich man and Lazarus the beggar. And the rich man perishes and he begs, send someone to tell my brothers. You know why? Because he can't go. That time is done. He can't go. The only hope he has for his brothers who are alive is someone who loves Jesus and who is alive. When we die, whatever obedience we were delaying, we will never have a chance to be obedient in that. When we die, whatever we said we were going to do for Jesus but didn't get around to, will never be gotten around to. And when we die, we will not be able to read the word one more time with our family or pray with our children or give toward God's global advancement of the gospel. Our opportunities to live for God's glory and the good of others here on earth are decreasing moment by moment by moment. And so the question is, are we, are we reconciling the reality of death or are we ruled by distractions and the precious moments that we have? distracting ourselves away, numbing ourselves away, perhaps with entertainment, not thinking about what matters most. And we should be those who live knowing we have a set number of days. We should also be those who are living for God's kingdom and not our own. The reality is, whatever opportunity you have this week, it will not come again. And you are not granted, none of us are, to know that we'll be given next Sunday. And so if there's something that you've been delaying Delay no more, for death will bring an end to whatever that is. Whatever you said, hey, I'm going to do this for Jesus before I die, I would encourage you, think about doing it before you go to bed. Think about doing it, moving it up in your agenda. Don't presume upon anything, because death brings a finality of that. We need a healthy perspective on death. We need that reality, which gets us to our second big truth. The response then is we will have a heavenly passion for life. If we have a healthy perspective on death, then we should then have a heavenly passion for life. Here's what he gets to. He comes to this conclusion. Verse 7, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun. Because that's your portion in life. In your toil, in which you toil under the sun. Someone said, don't ever write that on an anniversary card to your wife. <laughs> oh, boo, I love you, because this is what's all, it's all I got in this vain life under the sun. Happy anniversary, right? Uh, verse 10, whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might. For there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you're going. And so I love that he doesn't say, hey, we're all going to die. Let's just pack it in right here. Let's just, let's just sit down and give up. He doesn't say give up. He says go. It's coming we know that but before it does let us live life and the command and these are actually imperatives so these aren't hey think about this you're either going to obey this or you're going to disobey it the way he's written it are commands in the text so that we should go and enjoy God's gifts with gratitude so go set about as if you meant it and you know what you're doing from the beginning God meant for us to not just have eternal life, but abundant life. Life to the fullest of eating and drinking and loving and working. 
And so go here is a wake-up call. Stop bemoaning death certainty. Stop lamenting over death sadness. Stop stressing about death suddenness. Get over it and go. And here's why. He says in verse 7, For God has already approved what you do. You see, some people think God takes no pleasure in our pleasure, but God takes pleasure in our pleasure. He's saying God has approved this. This is his plan. Enjoy the graces that he gives. This is what the approval is. And so he says, take pleasure in eating and drinking with family and friends. He, he begins with that. of Go, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. To, to have food is a gift from God. To have delicious food is grace upon grace. Man, I have been in some cafeterias this summer, and they have had food. And then I've been in some places that has had delicious food. And I thank God for those graces, right? I certainly thanked him for the sustenance in Tuscaloosa. And then I thanked him that I was leaving that cafeteria. It was called Fresh Foods. It's all debatable, but sustained us. And so in the end, the food is not an end itself, but a means to further joy in the Lord. We talked about this in the chapter on pleasures. Too often you and I just stop at the pleasure. We enjoy the red velvet cake. We don't use the red velvet cake as further praise of God. Oh, God, thank you for taste buds. Thank you that you gave someone creativity. I don't even know how they thought to put red velvet cake together. But they did one day, God, and that was your work. And we're grateful for it. And we'll celebrate it, right? And so take joy in this food that, that we have this diversity. We, uh, the, the cultural uh, celebration that we did at the Baldazar's house. It was like this little taste of heaven because it was like all of my favorite food categories of Mexican food and Asian food and home cooking food. It was like all of them together. It was a little picture, I think, of what it's going to be like to, to pick off the meatloaf tree in heaven, you know, and then go over to the Twinkie tree and you're like, oh, praise the Lord, you know. I loved it. it was, I had revival that night while getting to celebrate the nations, right? So food is not an end in itself, but a means to further joy. And then drink here. And, you know, this is where it was really funny for me in the commentaries. Everyone was like, but no, don't get, you know, everyone moved to teetotal and defending and all these. Look, if Mountain Dew is your drink, drink Mountain Dew. If coffee is your drink, drink coffee. If Coke Zero is your drink, whatever it is. He says, drink and enjoy life to the glory of God. Obviously, the call is not to drunkenness, but delight. That's what he's calling us to. Delight in this. So eat and drink. Celebrate life by dressing and smelling well. He says, let your garments be always white. This isn't an advertisement for Clorox, right? He, he, he just, and let not oil be lacking on your head. What do you mean? These were the celebratory clothes. So when the, when the victor came home from the war, they were dressed in white. When the slave was set free, they were dressed in white. When the priests had their holiest days, they were dressed in white. It means celebrate. Don't, don't put on ashes and sackcloth because death is coming. Celebrate with what you wear. Put on good smelling oil that, 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 that's there. And of course, that'll have a lot to do with enjoying life with your wife, fellas. Put on some clean clothes and some good smelling and that flows right into the next one, you know? And the pursue and prize your family, especially your spouse. He says, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun because this is your portion in life and your toil at which you toil under the sun. Gentlemen, we are not told to live with your wife or put up with your wife, but enjoy our wives. And if we are too busy to enjoy life we have together, then we're too busy. This marriage is momentary. It will not be in heaven. We must seize each day that we're, that we're given for it. 
And I, I love what Gibson says. If you do not enjoy each other, then it's likely you're simply taking what you can from each other to pursue other goals and ambitions that are never going to give you all they promise. You may use each other to gain something that will turn out not to be gained and lose each other in the process. Again, the reason why this is important because we just keep seeing over and over and over affair after affair after affair. And there's no, there's no answers in affairs. There's only problems that come with this. And what happens is that he gives us our spouse to enjoy. And so maximize every day with your family, but especially your spouse. Enjoy the gift of intimacies was intended to be between a man and woman covenanted together for the duration of their lives. And no, God gives approval even over this. He celebrates in the right way that we celebrate in our homes. He then goes on and says, and whatever the Lord finds for you to do that day, you do it with all of your might. And the key here, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. And he tells you why, for there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shield to which you're going. There's none of that. It's going to be done. So do it now while you can. And, and here I want to give you some thoughts of do what he gives you to do, not wishing for what he's given someone else to do. He and his sovereignty, he's in control. So whatever he brings into our day. I love the great theologian Tommy Lee always says, you never know what you're going to be doing in a day. He always says it, and especially as we find ourselves sometimes in adventures, that you never knew you were going to be doing that when you woke up. But whatever it is that you're doing, do it with all of your might. Do this work as well as you can for as long as you can. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. It's one of the first verses we teach all of our children. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Say it, repeat after me. Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. One more time. Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And we do it in a little bit of a rhythm with it. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So that it gets in and then comes out. The key to all that then is with gratitude. Gratitude helps us not worship the gift, but the giver. So what we don't want to do is in the pursuit of that, elevate these things to God's. As Tim Keller says, sin is not just doing bad things, but it's also making good things into ultimate things. It's seeking to establish a sense of self by making something else more central to your significance, purpose, and happiness than your relationship to God. I want you to turn to John 6. That's where we're going to close today. I'm going to give you some, some reminders. Uh, Gibson writes, and he says, the life you have today comes from God's hand as a gift. You have it for a short while, and one day God will call time and take it back. I know that not all of you are aware, but at the end of Yom Kippur, which was the Day of Atonement, they would actually uh, read aloud Ecclesiastes 9-7. They would read aloud and say, Go eat your bread with joy and drink wine with a merry heart, for God's already approved what you do. And they would do it because it was the time for celebrating. Atonement had been made. It was the time to celebrate and to, to eat our bread and to, to drink our wine. And as we think about eating our bread, in John chapter 6, verse 48, this is what Jesus says. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. 
I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. I love that as we think about Ecclesiastes being challenged to go, certainly we want to eat our physical bread, but Christ is our bread that lets us know, even though Solomon may have had more wisdom, we've said before, we have more revelation than he had. And we know that for those of us who are in Christ, whom Christ is the bread of which we've partaken, death isn't the last thing. Death will not silence us. Death will only be the beginning of an incredible eternity being spent with him. And so as another has said, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for yesterday we were dead, but today we are alive. That we would do this. C.S. Lewis, in his Chronicles of Narnia, he, he wrote in the last battle, uh, when the children and the animals moved from old Narnia to new Narnia, they discovered that every rock and flower and blade of grass looks as if it meant more. And then the great theologian, the unicorn, quotes, and here's what the unicorn says. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right, bare, his right forehoof on the ground and neighed and then cried, I've come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Come further up. Come further in. And so as we, on this side of the cross, know what Solomon did not, Christ is our means of having provision to stand in the presence of a holy God. What steadily amazes me, as you think about Exodus, is not that God is able to draw unholy people to himself. It's that he would want to. And he wants to. And he has demonstrated that in sending Christ and what Christ has achieved and so what we do want to affirm is that our day of death is coming for all of us. And we do all need to be prepared. And the only way to be prepared is to be in Christ. And we should be doing all that we can to help others be prepared by helping them look to Christ and flee to Christ. And we can celebrate today because we know, as we've already sung, death has been conquered by our Christ. And so that we know life will go on and the most incredible life is still to come. But we are in the in-between period. And this life will never come again. These moments will never be relived. If you're not enjoying your family and your job and food, ask God to produce gratitude in your heart for his good gifts. If you're not stewarding each day as a gift, but you're squandering it in your own selfish pursuits, help, ask God to help you prioritize his kingdom and not your own. If you're avoiding thinking of death, would you ask God to help you have a healthy perspective so it will grip you with gospel, urgent living in the present? I'm going to pray for us, and Mitch is going to come and lead us in our songs. Father, would you help us not to waste our one life? Would you help us to maximize it by refusing to minimize death? We know that death touches our lives. Kevin's mother passed away last week. Trent's father this week. It's by your grace that you preserved Rook. He could have easily fallen out of that lift and he could have been harmed more than the broken ribs. 
Father, I pray that we would not look at these other deaths and refuse to hear the sermon they preach, that ours is coming. Ours is coming. We live in a world in which we've all chosen rebellion. And the reality is the fact that we are not all immediately put to death is evidence of your mercy. It's evidence of your slow to anger. We know that we live on this side of the cross. But that doesn't mean that we will be preserved from having to experience death. Should the Lord delay, then each one of us in this room will have that day and that moment. And when that moment comes, we can't do that one more thing for you that we were going to do. We can't have that one more conversation with our child or our coworker or our neighbor. So God, I pray that we would be gripped with gospel urgency and not pretend as if this isn't going to happen. That we go out of here, we go to lunch, and we go on with Sunday afternoon pretending like we're not one day closer to these things becoming reality. Help us to seize the great gifts that you give us. What a grace it is to be together as a faith family at Trace Crossing. What a sweet chapter you are writing for us. May we never take that for granted. What a sweet chapter when you give us family and friends, food, drink. Help us to take pleasure and use all of that pleasure for further praise. Father, if there's any way that we are squandering the days that you give us by pursuing sin, please help us to turn from that. Please help us not to waste these precious moments. Please help them to live, to use them for your glory and not just the gratification of our cravings. Empower us, put a distaste for sin in our mouths. Help us not to waste our life. I thank you that we know more than Solomon, that we know that Jesus came and took our unrighteousness and took our place in death that we may live. And we know that there is a time that's coming that will be incredible with you. And as incredible as it will be, it will be different from where we are now and these days won't come again. So help us, Father, to maximize what you're entrusting to us now as we look forward to what's to come. May the gospel never be far from our conversations. It's in your name we pray. Let's stand and sing. Thank <laughs> you.